This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is December 14th, 2023. As we record, the world is still digesting the final agreement, along with a host of commitments that came from the 28th UN Conference of the Parties, better known as COP28. The importance of these commitments and the need to put them into action as quickly as possible cannot be overstated. It is literally of existential consequence. For our discussion today, we're going to focus on what happened, why it matters for investors, and what may come next. We start with the founding director and head of the MSCI Sustainability Institute, Linda Ealing Lee. So, Linda, uh, welcome back to the program and welcome back from Dubai and, and COP28. Well, it's great to be back. That was definitely an adventure. And that's that's exactly what we're here to talk about today. So let's let's get to it. Why does this UN Climate Summit matter in terms of investors and financial institutions? Well, Adam, I think that you and I um, spoke probably two years ago when we were at the Glasgow COP. That was the first one where there was actually significant presence for, for finance and, and for international finance. And I think that since then, there has been increasing recognition from policymakers as well as civil society that the private sector really has to play an important role in, in solving the climate crisis. But the role for private capital um, is actually increasingly critical because without capital, um, there is actually no means of, of implementing some of these commitments. And so for capital markets leaders, um, I think what we've seen is that it's not just that they are understanding that there's a greater expectation from the world um, to contribute to solving the climate crisis, um, but there's also this realization that there's going to be wide-ranging and really transformational um, impact from climate change um, so that capital markets really actually need to be paying attention to what is actually going to happen um, in terms of the UN Climate Summit negotiations, as well as what will not happen, which could actually also create tremendous risks for the economy and for capital markets. One of the things that's really important is for investors and financial institutions to be paying attention to the signals that are coming out of the summit and how can it actually play out to impact asset prices. Because too little action among uh, national policymakers would lead to really quite magnified and predictable physical uh, effects. I mean, we've been seeing that the summer was the hottest year on record, and I think we're seeing many more unpredictable um, physical events that are impacting asset prices. But more action now can also be disruptive in terms of different industries and uh, who might be winners and losers in, in this energy transition. So I think a lot of the decisions being made at COP can influence whether the transition to economy can you know, add to um, new GHG emissions in the atmosphere in an orderly or disorderly way. And financial institutions and investors are spending more time and have a much greater presence at the UN Climate Summit now than they, than they used to. Whether or not you're taking an active decision, every single asset uh, will be repriced and revalued depending on how it is that um, climate policy rolls out um, or doesn't roll out because climate change is not going to go away regardless of what kind of a deal happens or doesn't happen at these climate summits. We heard similar sentiments when Joe had a separate conversation with Guy Turner. Guy is head of MSCI Carbon Markets and also represented the firm in Dubai. 
It was a very interesting experience being at COP, partly because it was the largest COP there's ever been, the largest gathering of really smart, hardworking, earnest people from all sections of society, all trying to do the right thing and solve this intractable problem of climate change. So there were people from the finance industry, from corporates, from governments, from NGOs, from media, from indigenous tribes. It's an amazing meeting of so many different people from all around the world, all sharing the same problem and trying to find solutions. We are in a world of six, seven billion people. We all need to move together to try and solve this problem. And it's very difficult to do. We take baby steps when we should be taking taking leaps and strides and there are there are genuine reasons why this is difficult we have rich countries who historically have contributed to a large part of the co2 in the atmosphere and there are large developing countries wanting to grow their economies with cheap energy which we did as a you know in the developed world over centuries and so there is this how do we solve this you know the problem of climate change in an equitable way that allows large parts of the world's population to develop to the standards of living that you know we have in the west and and developed world and these are really difficult problems and uh, sort of at the heart of the challenges in trying to get a global agreement on when and how and who should bear the burden and responsibility for for taking action so it is um i i, I am undis- i'm disappointed by the rate of progress in the international agreement and finance world, but I'm not surprised because it is very difficult. We'll hear more from Joe's interview with Guy later on in the program. For now, let's turn back to Linda. Let's move on to, to look at some of, some of that progress. There's something called the stock take. I guess, first of all, can you define that? And second of all, what does it show? Well, this particular climate conference really marks a milestone because it's about halfway between um, when the Paris Agreement was signed um, and 2030. So 2030 is a very significant date because the world will need to have uh, reduced emissions um, pretty much by half by 2030 in order to actually stay on track to be net zero emissions by 2050. And the reason it's important to be net zero by 2050 is to have some chance, some reasonable chance of keeping the Earth's warming to under one and a half degree rise by, by 2100. And going into this conference, the UN party that is um, in charge of convening the conference had already published um, some of the statistics around the world, the fact that the world is you know, way off track um, from the progress that we need to make. And so projections from various official institutions and as, as well as from MSCI would estimate that the world actually today is heading towards a world that's more than two and a half degrees warmer by 2100. So that would be quite catastrophic. At the COP proceedings, you know, of course, the focus is on countries and country progress. But, um, but at MSCI, we've been tracking private sector progress on decarbonization to supplement this kind of country view. Now, um, publicly listed companies of the world um, that we've been tracking. They, they together are responsible for contributing about 20% of um, global GSG emissions. And so um, we were able to present some of our publicly listed company stock take, if you will, at the official UN hub in Dubai um, in conjunction with the, the UNFCCC. And we were able to point out that since the Paris Agreement, you know, companies have actually been doing a lot. They've been quite ambitious. 
over a third of them have now set a climate target that that aspires to reach net zero, and that's a very significant increase than before. Um, and for for in support of the the UNFCCC stock take, you know, we did take a particular look at companies in eight developed market countries and, and eight emerging market countries this year um, in the in the G20. And um, what we found is that companies in the eight developed markets have actually been decarbonizing at a pretty rapid clip um, at an annual rate of um, minus 5.1%. The countries in which that they're actually headquartered have actually been decarbonizing um, at a much slower rate at minus 1.6%. And so, you know, we see that companies in a number of um, markets such as, you know, Germany and France and UK and, and even the US, many of the really large multinationals where their emissions are not just within the borders of those countries because emissions don't have borders, um, they actually are global. You know, their decarbonization has actually been really outpacing the reduction rates of, of their countries. And this is a very much in contrast with the emerging markets where, you know, you see Indonesia or India or China, they've all, you know, both on a national emissions front as well as their listed companies have actually been increasing um, their emissions. What we think is troubling is that as we project forward, even though these companies, especially in developed markets, have actually been decarbonizing at a fairly fast rate, um, what's happening is that their rate of decarbonization is set to slow down. And so a lot of the discussions that we were having in Dubai in many of the sessions that um, that we were participating in, it was really focusing on this projected slowdown for, for company progress. You know, what are actually the barriers that are keeping the world's largest companies from continuing to decarbonize at a fast rate? What are maybe the policy barriers um, and certainly the technological barriers that can actually help accelerate uh, this decarbonization and not, not, um, and, and not keep it from slowing down? So I have to say, I, I think that, you know, I spent probably 10 days there and I was quite encouraged and really uh, pretty impressed by how the discussions have really focused on the how, you know, how actually we're going to continue um, to be um, making progress and really the granularity of the discussions about what are the barriers and solutions are, be, are, are going to have to be for each industry and each type of technology. And I think there's a concerted effort to focus on the industries that are the hardest to decarbonize, um, you know, your, your construction and cement and your, you know, steel and, and so forth and not just talking at a high level. So there were a lot of entrepreneurs there. There were a lot of startups. There were a lot of um, investors interested in the scalability of some of these startups, some um, in inventions for new solutions. Those, when you talk about those, those innovations, those inventions, was there, was there one that, that stuck out to you as particularly impressive and important? Well, that's actually the thing. It's, it's actually what's impressive is how many there are and the, the parallel avenues that so many different technologies are taking at the moment. Um, you know, I participated in a, in a particular session that actually um, where um, McKinsey was looking at the categories, I mean, for 12 different categories of technologies that can actually really help to, to accelerate um, the decarbonization. But they do, they do address very different aspects of industrial processes or they do address different aspects of the problem. And I do really think that this having to take everything approach is actually what we need. And I think investors are thinking about it in that way, that there isn't necessarily going to be a, so a silver bullet technology or a silver bullet um, alternative energy source um, that is going to um, solve the climate crisis. So I, I really find that mentality as well as that approach um, very, very constructive. So let's get to the agreement. This is what 
a lot of the media, a lot of participants were very focused on, very contentious right up to the end from what I understand. But what in that final agreement, in your view, again, to keep us focused on the investment community, what stands out for you there? Look, Abby, I I woke up to the final agreement this morning, and I think that there has been a huge amount of focus about the words fossil fuel and whether or not it's in the final text or not, and whether it's abated or unabated, and whether it's phasing down or phasing out. Um, But honestly, if we step back, we kind of all knew going into this um, this uh, climate conference that the dominance of fossil fuels is coming to an end, um, and the debate has been about how far and how fast. Um, but really, in some ways, it's sort of staining the obvious, which is that we need to transition away from fossil fuels. So for me, I think, and for the investment community, it's almost the less contentious parts that were the most um, interesting and significant, which are you know, the tripling of renewables, the doubling of energy efficiency, enhanced commitments to eliminate methane, um, and that included commitments that came from 50 oil and gas producers for, for, um, to eliminate routine flaring. And the most important thing about these parts is that this, these tar- all are targeting 2030 and not 2050. I think this is a kind of timeline that we need to be working towards because it is in this, this kind of timeline that can allow allocation and investments. And, and 2050 has always just seemed too far away and it, it makes it easy not to do anything. I thought that it was very significant that there are 20 countries that have signed a pledge to triple their nuclear energy capacity by 2050. Um, I think that whether or not that can be accomplished um, is an outstanding question because I, I think that this is not a technology that allows you to, to to build very quickly because there are permitting issues, there are community environmental concerns. Um, but you know, if if implemented, I think nuclear energy then would go from meeting about 10% of the world's current electricity needs today to almost a third uh, within 25 years, and I think that's a very significant um, signal it means that all options are on the table. And I think that should be the message to investors and to the financial community is that all options are on the table. Um, I think that whatever criticism there might be about pursuing certain alternative energies or decarbonization solutions, um, whether or not they are commercially viable today, and maybe some of the challenges might seem intractable, they really are technologies that need investment to be able to, for us to be able to experiment and see whether or not they work, right? And, and whether or not they can actually scale. Um, and so the significant investments that we're going to need from private sector finance um, is going to come out of some of these agreements, you know, um, as countries now are going to go back and revise their national policies um, over the next 22 years to be able to implement some of the things that are in this final agreement that um, financial industry really needs to be paying attention to specific national policies um, because um, I think that that will really change how they value um, and price the the various investment opportunities they have ahead of them. I want to I want to just not to not to harp on the nuclear, but I do want to spend maybe a little bit more more time there. It's a balance, right? I mean, we have to consider everything, but clearly there are you know knee-jerk concerns that come up. When you know when, when I hear the term nuclear energy, during these discussions that you either heard or were a part of, how would people looking at countering some of those objections? I actually heard very little on the ground about nuclear, which is why I found it somewhat surprising uh, that this agreement came together. There was very little attention paid to this agreement coming together relative to the other things that were 
um, on the agenda. Of course, there's a huge amount of um, priorities that different people have, and perhaps this one was a little bit under the radar. Then, I, and I would imagine that that um, as we come out of COP and and different um, stakeholders start looking at each of these elements that are coming out of the agreements, um, we will probably hear a lot more debates about it because it's um, it's true there are there are significant technological progress um, in some areas, but I I do think that there are some um, fairly intractable challenges that have not been solved. So some more to come. Okay, that's fair. Um, let's let's get back to the the final text around fossil fuels. If we can, what what else stood out for you there? Yeah. So coming back to this final text, I mean, this transition away from fossil fuel and calling on countries to transition away from fossil fuels, um, it really does provide a very strong signal for policymakers around the world, but also for industry and for for finance. And clearly, it was a huge accomplishment on the part of the UAE to be able to get that into the text. Now, what did stand out to me, too, is that it called for a transition away from fossil fuels in a just and equitable manner. And I think what that is saying is that there is an explicit recognition that a lot of different economies are going to struggle to be balancing this energy transition imperative with energy security um, or even with energy, just basic energy access. And therefore, the approaches that each country is going to have to take to transition away from fossil fuels is actually going to have to be quite country specific and quite um, respectful, if you will, um, of the economic and social realities on the ground for each country. And it really speaks to some of the challenges that we have when we're trying to translate some of these commitments into implementation. And the example that comes to mind is coal. You know, at Glasgow, there was this major commitment to phase down coal, um, but the progress has actually, in terms of implementation, has actually been really slow, and there has been continued building of new coal-powered uh, power plants. And, you know, if we look at the Asia-Pacific region in particular, that region accounts for um, more than three-quarters of the current global um, coal power generation, and just that alone is going to eat up about 40% of the remaining global emissions budget for staying under one and a half degrees. And there is that commitment that, and that desire on the part of um, many of the asset owners in the financial community in that region to help with this transition. Um, however, it's been difficult. You know, we saw so the MSCI Sustainability Institute, we recently actually um, simulated the managed phase out of 5,000 coal power plants in, in 15 different markets in Asia. And, and really the challenge you see is that in each of the markets, you have to have a different path to replace the coal power generation that, that would suddenly require a dramatic ramp up and switch over to renewables. Um, that can be highly disruptive. It's actually probably not realistic for some markets to do it in a way that would be, that would be orderly. And there are also very significant barriers to financing that transition. So I participated in a number of discussions with um, where Singapore um, is proposing to use transition credits to help compensate current owners of coal assets. You know, there are lots of different ideas to try to find financing instruments or financing innovation to be able to help with that transition. But so this is kind of an example of the fact that even if we talked about, and it was a huge accomplishment to get this in the text that you can, that, that we will transition away from fossil fuels, the implementation of it and the financing of it is actually what's to come. And that could be the much, much larger barrier than the wrangling over whether the text gets into the, the final agreement. What's the role of national policy in different places around the world as, 
as we try to put some of these commitments into action? Well, each country is going to have to come up with the policies to be able to deliver on their commitments. And I think that a lot of countries are still relatively new to experimenting with what types of policy will be most successful. What was the most discussed in Dubai on the ground um, was actually an example of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. And I think what was interesting was that it wasn't even just the overall package and the overall philosophy around the IRA, but, but really digging into very specific examples in a number of sessions. So, for example, at a, um, at a roundtable that um, MSCS Sustainability Institute had hosted, the, the White House National Climate Advisor, Ali Zaidi, talked about how the administration really learned from trying to pair the scaling of the production of batteries for electric vehicles, which was incentivized through IRA with regulations on tailpipe emissions so that you have this kind of pairing of investment plus standards uh, that could be more effective um, and is actually much clearer in terms of incentivizing the industry, the auto industry to, to, to pursue a certain direction. It's these kinds of very specific elements um, that participants on the ground across all sectors were very interested in exploring. Um, the other policy approach um, that got a lot of attention is the experiment that the EU is going to be running with um, the carbon border adjustment mechanism and what are the kind of going to be the knock-on effects for other countries in, ter- in response to the, this, uh, the to CBAM and whether or not, in effect, this is going to introduce a global price on carbon um, over the next several years. So there's a lot of, um, there's a, just a real spirit in some ways of experimentation with policymakers. Um, so I, I definitely think that over the next um, two years in particular, as um, national governments are going to have to revise their policies in line with these new commitments that came out um, in the final text. And among the solutions uh, when it comes, again, to, to the finance that is, that is necessary is something called blended finance. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, how that works, and your sense of where we stand coming out of COP? Yeah, sorry, Adam, I was laughing because blend of finance, I mean, that was, that was really the buzzword of the, of the week. It was really on the agenda of every single panel or event I went to. Um, the, the someone, everyone always had to comment about blend of finance. I think it was sort of the, the AI of a financial industry where we, right now we can't go to any conference without having AI on the, on the agenda. Right. Yeah, so, so there at COP, it was blend of finance. And, and I think a lot of the focus is actually on the multilateral development banks, so the World Banks and, um, and the other development banks. They're really under a fair bit of pressure um, to be doing a lot more of the financing around climate mitigation and adaptation. So the idea would be that the, um, the, the multilateral development banks would do things like take the first loss or address the currency risk, the sort of things that can take down the risk of having finance specific projects. Now that the issue is I don't know how scalable it is because every deal would have to be quite custom and, and maybe it's not the same the sizes that are up in terms of investments that are appropriate for the largest institutional investors. But I do think that there are um, types of investors, um, private, um, private sector investors, whether they're philanthropies or, or family offices that can actually participate in these because they don't necessarily have the fiduciary duty or some legal constraints to to seek the highest risk suggested return. So um, I think it's important to recognize that with blended finance instruments, you know, de-risking it doesn't make them the most attractive to come c- compared to other investment opportunities that global investors might have. 
Um, what I thought was puzzling because um, blend of finance was on the agenda so much was that other instruments that have built a bit more of a track record didn't get as nearly as much um, airtime. And, and they, they can actually, I think, channel private capital to, to developing markets quite effectively. Um, one of them is green bonds um, and sustainability-linked bonds. So I think the issuance of green bonds across the Middle East and North African regions, for example, they really have been expanding quite rapidly in recent years. They're still a very small part of the um, global issuance, but, but really, you know, I think they've been doubling every year for several years now. Um, and they are actually increasingly, this, these green bronze um, instruments are being used to fund new solutions. Uh, we're beginning to see targeted projects uh, around green hydrogen or green steel projects. Um, and I think the other avenue for channeling capital to developing markets is actually the development of a high integrity voluntary carbon markets. And we did see some of the progress there. At COP28, there were some pushes by, for example, the U.S. State Department and the World Bank to use carbon credits as a, as a way to direct capital towards um, climate investment in developing countries. More broadly, there were several measures um, that have actually, uh, I think, will point towards raising the integrity of voluntary carbon markets, which I think is, um, is really important to lay down that uh, some of those foundations to make those markets work. While carbon markets have long been a topic of conversation, as Linda mentioned, for these markets to work, there needs to be a much greater sense of integrity and confidence. For more context, we once again look to our resident expert on the subject, Guy Turner. First of all, there is a need to rebuild trust in, uh, in carbon markets, given the press announcements that have uh, been circulated in uh, over the year. And the good news is, I think, at COP, but not just COP, but very recently, a lot of the initiatives that have been underway for a year or two to achieve that aim have started to bear fruit. Just before COP, we had the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative, which looks at when and how carbon credits can be used by companies and the claims they can make associated with that. And they launched a new proposal to allow companies to use carbon credits as part of their mitigation pathway, even under net zero, and in addition to their science-based uh, target commitments. That is yet to pay, sort of play through and be fully sort of absorbed, but it was a very interesting and very significant step because a lot of the science-based targets that companies have been uh, subscribing to have not allowed the use of carbon credits um, uh, to date. So the dust hasn't settled on that agreement, but it, on that proposal, but it's, um, it's a movement in the right direction. Science-based reduction targets under scope three are hugely difficult for many companies to achieve. And on the supply side, we've had announcements from the standard setting bodies such as Vera, with a renewed emphasis on much more accurate measurement of forest-based carbon credits, so what's called Red Plus, and the intention to apply those new methodologies retrospectively to all projects that um, are currently operating and issuing credits, so that's important. And then this, another initiative, and apologies for all the acronyms, but there's an Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets, which is a coalition of a lot of other stakeholders 
and they have issued something called the Core Carbon Principles, which sort of starts to sort of change the minimum standards that are respected in uh, when when defining and and creating a carbon project and the credit. And altogether, these these initiatives, these announcements, um, are starting to deal with this long-term problem of of credibility and integrity. And I expect to see more action from companies to sort of delve into the details of those those initiatives. Hopefully we get into a virtuous circle of more action leading to more commitments, more investment, and um, and building on where we've got to today. The agreement hammered out at COP28 would operationalize a new international carbon market under the Paris Agreement, and that would allow countries or companies to use carbon credits to help meet their climate targets, as you as you mentioned. How significant are these developments for companies and investors? That they are points of detail. The um, Glasgow Agreement and subsequent documentation that followed Glasgow made some really important decisions around the accounting of credits between countries, um, uh, both at the project level and at the sort of national level, in with reference to what is referred to as a corresponding adjustment that says that if a credit is created in one country, it can't be double counted in that country and then also exported for use as a credit against a target in another country. And that is the basic principle, the one that really matters. What we've been talking about here under the, um, you know, the emissions avoidance or conservation enhancement are sort of points of detail. And, and, and the emission avoidance one is really about forestry uh, assets. So getting credits for avoiding deforestation. But all other project types that can create projects, providing they have this underlying structure of a corresponding adjustment, which is effectively a a letter of assurance from the host government um, that those emissions won't be double counted, is still in place. Uh, Nothing's changed uh, that was agreed in Glasgow and COP26. And um, so one can still do this. One can still trade. One can still invest. And one can still write agreements that will transfer the emission reductions in one country or one project in a country to another. So this is not an impediment to the progression of this market. Just kind of sounds a little bit like making sure the scales are balanced when accounting for carbon credits. Yeah, but those scales um, are somewhat already balanced because of the accounting framework that was agreed at Gla- in Glasgow. What we're talking about is depending is really deciding which weights to put on the scales to make sure that it's balanced. So COP28 saw a series of initiatives designed to use carbon markets to channel private capital for climate investment in developing countries and for moving clean energy from coal and for forest preservation in countries such as Ghana and Costa Rica. What are your sense of the possibilities here? I think there are possibilities. Our contacts and our our clients are Certainly, very interested in this uh, in these kind of um, opportunities. The rate at which these opportunities can grow is largely going to be dependent on the appetite of the buying countries, uh, the rich countries. So, this is really a mechanism to channel finance from the rich world into the developing world um, and reduce emissions at the same time. For example, they switch from clean energy, you know, to switch to to clean energy from coal in in large developing countries such as China or Indonesia um, is going to take a, you know billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. 
And those are sizable sums. Currently, there are large sums that are being used. We have a number of debt for nature swaps that are going on. Ecuador last year refinanced a billion dollar loan for nature. And the, the conditions of the loan were to ensure preservation of natural ecosystems. And, you know, that comes on the back of a number of other sort of uh, international finance mechanisms. So there is already momentum in this space. There is, there, there is already sort of capital flows, be it at the national or multilateral lending agency level or private level. And, um, you know, that momentum needs to be continued forward. The accounting systems can can do whatever's needed of them, really, to apportion the rights to those emission reductions. So, yeah, I expect to see a lot more activity in that area. One important storyline that was leading up to and continued during COP28 was the fact that the conference was hosted by the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, and climate policy watchers' skepticism around what kind of a real role the UAE could play when it came to forging a meaningful agreement. This is one area where Linda, as head of the MSCI Sustainability Institute, she just jumped right into that question, leading a private roundtable with finance leaders specifically chosen from the Gulf region. I asked her about that discussion. The topic was whether the Gulf region which has been an exporter of hydrocarbons, can actually become an exporter of something else, which is decarbonization um, to, to developing countries. It was a very, very candid discussion, I have to say. And um, I think that in terms of some of the um, takeaways, I think you know the participants did agree that the GCC actually has, uh, the Gulf region actually have very unique advantages in terms of their geography, in terms of their access to raw materials that can lower the cost of production and really position them to um, to enable their own energy and economic transition, as well as transitioning um, those of their neighboring um, regions that are are less well endowed, I, I suppose. Um, there is also, I think, a lot of agreement that developed markets, um, including most of the large kind of private sector financial players, they really do tend to focus on decarbonization without really under understanding or addressing some of the really just basic energy access issues. Um, of the global south. Um, there were a number of participants whose work is focused on Africa in particular, and they really took the issue with a perspective um, that was very prevalent at COP, where uh, you know policymakers and financial institutions talk a lot about energy transition. The whole thing is about energy transition, but that the irrelevance of energy transition to Africa when there isn't actually energy to transition from was a point that, that, that they felt like was pretty fundamental, but was overlooked. And then finally, I think what was interesting is to kind of tease out just the, the level of um, debate around how quickly and how completely you're going to be able to phase down conventional hydrocarbons. And we definitely heard very strong points of view um, from uh, participants in the region that hydrocarbons are going to remain in our economy, um, especially the, the ones that come from the Gulf region, which are more um, with that they argue are, are more efficient, um, you know, economically and from an emissions perspective, such that other regions um, should perhaps stand down and phase down and out, you know, long before the, the Gulf region should. Outside of COP, what are you hearing in terms of how investors see their role when it comes to decarbonizing the economy? 
Well, I think that investors have gone from a much more simplistic view um, of how to address the the climate issue and how to actually play a role in the transition to a much more dynamic view. And I am I, I think that everyone recognizes that the investment institutions around the world have actually gone up a tremendous learning curve over over the last two years. For example, um, they've really gone from a more static view of looking at their assets from either being green or brown and whether or not then therefore they belong in your portfolio or not to um, really a more dynamic view. You're really focused on transitioning each asset, Um, not really just on sorting or categorizing or labeling, but really actually interested in whether um, which of your invested assets are already aligned with net zero and which ones are the ones that you really need to be paying attention to and get them to be aligning uh, and on the way to being aligned. And then which ones are the ones that you really um, are going to need to think about phasing out in some sort of orderly way. Um, I think that there's also a tremendous amount of attention now being focused on linking the investments um, to particular assets with the physical emissions in the world. So we've worked very hard with um, a number of our clients to make sure that we can actually be attributing um, where the emissions um, reductions in their portfolios are coming from and contributing to in a physical emission um, point of view. Um, And then finally, I think that one of the areas where investors are in financial institutions and more generally um, are really learning a lot is around climate scenarios. I think that we are all um, at the stage of understanding that that climate risk models are evolving, um, their application into financial modeling is quite challenging, and it can't capture everything that we don't we we don't know actually even from climate risk models. Um, and so, you know, really working on a continuous improvement, if you will, um, in terms of looking at climate risk models and how to incorporate that in um, in a dynamic ways as we learn more. Keeping the focus on that progress. What's your sense of where the climate economy is headed? What we were all saying as we were going to Dubai is the fight is going to be about when and how fast the fossil fuel era is ending. But really coming out of Dubai, I think that a lot of it will be in terms of where it's going is really focusing on the how. And we're already starting to focus on the how in terms of the financial industry, um, trying rolling up its sleeves to really understand how each industry is transitioning. Um, but now we really need action. And and I think that the action is where capital really needs to be um, coming to the party because where it needs to be deployed um, and by who and on what terms is really kind of this next direction of where we can direct the climate economy. I'm, I'm sorry, one, one, one question on that. Fight is an interesting word. Would you say that that calling it a fight still applies or have we indeed moved on to the how? as opposed to if? I think we have moved on to the how, or we are certainly much closer to moving on onto the how, and I see evidence that people are moving on to the how. The how doesn't make it less of a fight, however, because there are different options and there are different priorities you're going to have to make and a different balance um, that you're going to have to strike um, between, uh, say, energy security and access and how you're going to be um, actually implementing the transition. So I, I don't think the fight is in any way over just because um, we're trying to move into implementation. In fact, I think that's a harder, it's probably a harder hurdle um, than making the commitment. <laughs> As we came close to the end of our time, Linda wanted to be sure 
that she was able to make the point that a lot of the discussions at COP were not just about energy. It was actually about a lot of men, like a lot of other topics, and that is related to climate, trade, food in particular, really played a big role、um, in this year's conference. Health, nature, gender equality, democracy—you know, there were just so many interlinkages with climate and and the fact that climate change touches on all of these aspects. So I think that a lot of companies、um, and investors that were there on the ground.、Um, Is really realizing how expansive and how intertwining all these different risks、um, and, and growth opportunities are,、um, and so really the headline would be then you know all finance really is climate finance because it's really touching on so much of our、um, so many different aspects of our economy and and I think the overall thrust that sustainable growth needs to actually mobilize all these different areas and consider all these different areas、um, is a really daunting task, but also just a much more holistic. View of what climate finance is actually about.、And、that's all for this week. Our thanks to Linda and Guy, and to all of you for listening. For more insights from COP28, check out a new paper on MSCI.com titled "COP28: Key Takeaways for Investors from the Global Climate Summit." And you can also visit MSCI-Institute.com. That will also do it for this year, as Joe and I take a much-needed rest and finish up plans for a new year of insights. We'll begin in mid-January with the Investment Trends in Focus Quarterly Roundtable, which will once again be moderated by MSCI's Global Head of Research, Ashley Lester. Until then, I'm your host Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.